So as Ben mentioned, uh, the scripture today is Acts 19, all of it. Um, and that's on page 928 in the Bible in the pew in front of you. Give you guys a second to turn to that. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about twelve men in all. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered him, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom the evil spirit, and the male who was the evil spirit, leaped on them, mastered them all, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices, and a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all, and they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver." So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and to go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who had made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth, and you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. There is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great god Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be disposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and cried out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Azarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another. For the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. 
some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander motioned with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. Motioned with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of Ephesus is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open, and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. be here for a while, so I wanted to give you the full snapshot. Now, before you get too nervous, I mean a number of weeks, if not months, will be here in Ephesus, not just this morning. We will definitely be done by dinner. This is the reason that I began preaching Acts, was to get to Ephesians, So consider this, I think, the world's longest sermon series prologue or introduction. Fifteen months we've been on a journey toward Ephesus. I guess kind of like Paul. Uh, We've logged a lot of miles, sometimes in questionable directions, but we have been trying to follow the Holy Spirit diligently, and we're fairly wiped out. But we're not ready to throw in the towel, or in this case, the handkerchief, Paul's time in Ephesus follows the similar pattern that we should be used to by now if we've been journeying along with him. He comes into a new city. Uh, He preaches first amongst Jews. He seems to be received by just a few and ultimately is rejected by the majority. He riles them up and he moves on in his ministry to the Gentiles where many more receive, and depending on how long he is there, he ultimately stirs up strife in the whole city. Therefore, the way, the truth, and the strife. And we saw this in Corinth, in Athens, in Thessalonica, in Philippi, and really any other city that Paul ventured into that we're given more details on. It seems to be a pattern that's as predictable as a Seahawks game. I'll have you know that I wrote this, and I'm going to read it to you. I wrote this on Wednesday. Things start off slowly, especially when you're on the road in a new city. You've got a game plan, but it doesn't quite seem to be working. Those watching remain stubborn in their unbelief and speak evil to anyone who will listen, especially on Twitter. But you press on, you make a few miraculous plays, you turn many skeptics into believers, but in the end, you're overpowered, and there you sit naked and wounded. And if you didn't watch the game yesterday or any game this year, good for you. Just because it's the same pattern that we've seen Paul in his journeys follow, it doesn't mean there's not unique Details and differences, just like in any Hawks game, you say, I've never quite seen anything like that before. In Ephesus, these seven sons of Sceva, a bonfire of books, maybe totaling in the hundreds of thousands of dollars of value, up in smoke. Miraculous aprons. I know the cooks amongst us would like to know more about this. A city that's in uproar, chanting for two hours in some kind of hypnotic trance. Uh, The recurrence of the gift of tongues, which we haven't seen since uh, Peter's ministry in Caesarea, Acts 10, and we won't see again. Um, A sacred stone having fallen from heaven. Uh, There's just a number of 
things in this chapter that would be uh, fun to chase down. But to avoid these rabbit trails, and maybe next week I am debating on a rabbit trail type sermon, uh, maybe a trails sermon. You can let me know if that would be a good idea this morning. I'd like to keep us on the way, the one true path, and see if we can stay there. Deuteronomy 5.32 says, You shall be careful, therefore, to do as the Lord your God has commanded you. You shall not turn aside to the right or to the left. You shall walk in the way that the Lord your God has commanded you, that you may live and that it may go well with you. So I'm encouraged by that this morning. You know, as much as we'd like to see ourselves as Paul, and it's not a a wrong question to ask, Lord, Lord, am I like that in my calling, in my response to your word in my life? Do I live in those kinds of ways? That's how we enter into uh, God's story of Scripture. But the reality is, we're probably a lot more like the Ephesians, if we're honest. And it's one of the main reasons I felt led to preach through Paul's letter to the Ephesians, which we will get to in uh, maybe a few weeks as we step out of Acts uh, for a little bit of time and by God's grace would return when he leads us to return. There are so many connections and parallels uh, between the people of Ephesus and the people of the greater Seattle area. And I'm sure you are quite aware and have thought that often. Uh, But in case you haven't, uh, maybe a few things about this incredible city. It was a leading, uh, influential, commercial, and financial city of the region of, of Rome. This is obviously not in Rome, but in the Roman Empire. It is a port city. Uh, it is known for its arts and entertainment. When I'm speaking in this way, it's in the day of Paul. Today it is but a ruins. Known for its arts and entertainment with maybe the state-of-the-art amphitheater in all of the world. 25,000 seats. It's famous for its market uh, that was bustling often with trade and you might say tourists from all areas, often uh, smelling of fish, and the first Starbucks was there. The city was also very spiritual. Various temples or gathering places uh, to celebrate and worship in eclectic ways But the iconic temple of Artemis stood above them all on every postcard or souvenir keychain. It would have been front and center on New Year's Eve. It would have been illuminated magenta by thousands of LEDs. I might be pressing a few details here just to help you connect. Artemis was the Greek goddess of fertility. And you know, maybe, that in um, Greek mythology. Uh, There were many gods representing um, various aspects of life that would be appeased or worshipped, and it seemed that the goddess of fertility uh, would be a good god to have oversee your finances. I guess that makes sense. So the temple of Artemis was also a world-renowned bank at this time. More gold and silver may have been possessed within its walls than in any other locale throughout the entire region. So people would come and deposit their money to gain interest as that bank then would loan monies out to businesses or individuals or even the government. And so at the center of worship for a people was blended with this goddess of fertility and finances. These blurred lines. The people of Ephesus are consumed with entertainment, the arts, their money, and sex. And so as we move into Paul's letter to the Ephesians, I will need to work very diligently to help you connect with a people like this. The Ephesians may have shared many things in common, but they were diverse as well a diverse city. Paul seemed to engage and encounter them all in his time there. He stays in Ephesus longer, uh, as far as we know, than any other city that he visited. Up to three plus years he remained in Ephesus. So his heart with 
these people is evident. We see it uh, in his letter significantly. The three types that uh, just uh, give snap that we have snapshots of in his encounters. These uh, the spiritualists we'll call them, and then the religious, which he always seems to engage, and then maybe the hedonist, uh, those that are worldly. We met the Epicureans in. Athens, and certainly there would have been some that followed that lifestyle and practice. Uh, we might more commonly say uh, hedonists. Let me explain. There's a few of these connections, these encounters. The spiritualists, these uh, 11 and a half or 12 and a half men. Uh, oh, it is interesting that Luke says there were about 12 men, as if that number needed to be estimated. I don't know. Uh, maybe he was making a connection uh, here with these men to... Uh, the number 12 and what that means within Scripture. But let's just say these 11 and a half or 12 and a half men that uh, Paul first meets, they're called disciples, so they are learners, they're followers, but that's about as far as they've made it. Um, Paul has some specific questions for them, probably just in dialogue. Uh, he comes to see some significant gaps in their understanding of who Jesus is and what he had done. So he says, did you receive the Holy Spirit uh, when you were baptized, and I might touch on that a little bit more next week. This should have been a known thing. Uh, when you become a follower of Jesus Christ, uh, you are filled with the Holy Spirit, and you know it. It's not ambiguous. Their response is, we've heard nothing of the Holy Spirit. And so these are not believers. They can't be. Paul would say later in his letter to the Romans, Romans 8, verse 9, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. They would have known uh, that something had transformed in their life, and they are at least honest and open. When, when so often we can uh, try to pretend that we know more than we do or that we are more than we are, uh, especially maybe in the presence of someone like Paul, they say, no, we don't. We don't know. Tell us. Teach us. What we see of these, well, I say spiritualists, they are at least open, hungry, seeking, looking for something far more than what they see and experience in the world around them. They're waiting uh, maybe for this very moment that God would send someone like Paul to teach them, to teach them the rest of the story because they had become followers, it seems, of John the Baptist. Uh, it is interesting how they couldn't know of the Spirit if they truly uh, were followers of John, because John proclaimed that the Holy Spirit would come and would baptize uh, followers of Jesus, and that uh, John himself was no one special but a voice calling out in the wilderness. But again, we see these serious gaps in their understanding of the truth. And I think this describes so many today, spiritualists who might even affirm, oh, I'm I'm spiritual, uh, but I'm not religious. Uh, I don't go to church, uh, but I, I do believe in something more. And so these people may take pieces from here and bits from there and just trying to make sense of life and the world, what is experienced and seen. That there must be something more, but what is it? And so these people may be just as faithful to believe in an all-powerful God who could be creator uh, as they might express a belief in karma or some kind of spiritual force. Uh, and so we take bits and pieces and try to make them work. They may be uh, simply agnostic that there is a God or power, uh, but it's hard to know or be knowable uh, what that is. Or they may be more focused like Hindus or Buddhists in their pursuit of the spiritual. And there may be more that they follow. Uh, but one thing is true, that the spiritualists uh, would, in our culture, and likely in Ephesus, would have never said there is only one way, one truth. They would have come short of that proclamation or outright denied that that could be true. So Paul engages them. And we'll move on to the religious. In this case, the Jews. Uh, those who would say, there is one God. There is one way. There is one truth. And we have found it. And whether openly or subtly, uh, these religious would say, uh, I'm better than you. I have discovered more. I am following and living a more holy life. And therefore, God will be pleased or must be pleased. Uh, 
you would ask them to define how they know that and where the line is, because these would say, I know I'm above the line, uh, but they would have a hard time defining where that line is. They would simply say, I know that uh, I'm, I'm above it, because look at, look at the world. And if God would not accept me and my devotion to him and the way that I am living, then who would he accept? I, I know I'm maybe not at the very top of that list, but I'm certainly above, above the line. Those who are religious believe that by their actions, by their lifestyle, by their devotion, by the way that they give or help or serve uh, or pray, that they will be accepted by God. They will somehow earn his favor or get his attention, and they will have enough on that side of the ledger uh, to enter into his grace for eternity. Some are greatly confident in that. Others, when pressed, would have more doubts or fear, and so would resolve their efforts all the more into their religious fervor and focus. In reality, the religious are maybe further from God, even than the spiritualists, like a Hindu or a Buddhist or agnostic. Jesus would quote from Isaiah 29, verse 13, when the Lord said, These people... They draw near with their mouth and they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Throughout Scripture, God is a relational God, desiring to make himself known even as father to children. Jesus certainly clearly emphasizes that aspect of who God is as the father, the good and perfect father from above. But those who are religious may have zero concept of a relationship with this God. They might have great fear of him, but seek just to earn his pardon or mercy, but never to know him. And that's what Isaiah says, it's what Jesus affirmed. The hedonist, like the Epicurean, those who are seeking pleasure and fulfillment in worldly things, worshiping at the temples of entertainment, money or sex, believing and hoping even that some combination of these worldly things will bring a sense of fulfillment or satisfaction, therefore salvation from this life. Maybe it's some form of escape. And it seems that the vast majority of our world falls into this category as if we can't relate to every one of them in part, there's a seeking and a looking for something that is more, that's beyond us. The hedonist or the Epicurean would say, there's nothing beyond this life. They may not outright deny a spiritual presence, but they would say, this is it. Live life to the full. Experience is really the only true reality. And so they strive to find that fulfillment, maybe in an ever-increasing nature, and maybe it's in rejection of one in favor of another, because the reality is they know that nothing ultimately lasts in fulfillment. It is fleeting at best and only temporary. And even if your team raises that trophy, uh, it doesn't last long before you look to the next season, and you are never satisfied. The majority of society seems to be swept up, and I guess there's comfort in numbers, and maybe not even pausing long enough to ask, why am I here? Why am I doing what I am doing? And yet, there you are, chanting along, longing to belong. And now we need to see how how did these different types of people respond to the word of God that Paul was preaching. And if you say, I don't know where really where I relate most, I relate some, uh, how you respond to God's word should be evidence of maybe which camp you are in, maybe intentionally, maybe subtly. Some wholly embrace the word of God and see him transform their lives. Others wholly reject Paul's message, and in fact, uh, get riled, threaten in response. And it's interesting that the 
vast number of religious people reject. There were more believers that came from the spiritualists and from the hedonists than from the religious. Because at least the spiritualists would say, there must be more. I am looking and seeking for that truth. And the hedonists would know that ultimately nothing in their life is ever truly satisfied and fulfilled. They too are on a journey where the religious believes they have arrived. They have figured out what matters to God and they are living it and do not want to hear even the suggestion that they have no ability to save themselves, that nothing that they do is good enough to earn God's favor. It's why Jesus was sent to die on their behalf that they might have life. That's the message that Paul proclaims. And so the religious in Ephesus and in any other city ultimately heard him say to them, your whole life's pursuit still falls short and keeps you from God. And very few are softened and humbled in heart, broken by that truth, and respond in repentance. Their hearts remain hard and against. So who are we? And how does God's word strike or pierce our hearts? What is his gospel? We should know it by now. Let me summarize it like this. There is only one way. And this way is not a thing or a what as much as it is a who. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the true King and the true Messiah. Jesus will demand everything of your life. And yet, as you give it in its place, in your life, when you lay down your life, in its place is His life and life eternal. His grace, His mercy, His forgiveness, His healing, His hope, His peace, His joy, His love. Jim Elliott, famous missionary, maybe most well known for this simple quote, He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he can never lose. And he willingly lived and gave his life that way. And that's the promise of the gospel and the hope of the message that Paul was proclaiming. That's the good news regardless of who you are and what you've done or who you aren't and what you haven't done. So whether spiritual or religious or hedonist, you are all loved deeply by a father who not only loves you but longs to be with you, to be known by you and to make himself known to you. It's where life is found. That's the good news. It should sound good. It shouldn't sound like a weight and a burden that you must then achieve or act or behave or move in certain ways and rhythms. Those may come, but Jesus clearly said, those who love me will obey me. Those who love will follow. Can you believe that? That love is at the center of the all-powerful, creative God's message, the most important thing. Jesus said to those who asked, and who were starting to get it, right? These are the religious asking. So what then is the greatest commandment? Putting him to the test. What's the most important thing? If what we're doing is not enough, you tell us, Jesus, what is the most important thing? And he didn't hesitate. And I'm always struck by this. You read through the Gospels and look at Jesus and his encounters with people. And when they ask him questions or challenge or try to test him or trap him, he is so crafty to turn it back upon their hearts. But in this case, he answers it. says, you want to know? It's this. It's love. That's at the highest point. It's love. For God so loved. So love. God with all your heart and your soul and your mind. Notice that he didn't say obey, trust, surrender, follow. All good things. He said love. It all hangs upon that. That's why it's incredible news. Not just good news. It's incredible news. Jesus, the Son of God, the King of the world, so loved that he died for you, for me. That's Paul's message to the Ephesians. 
some received and believed, had their lives transformed. If that message is to come to us today, the beginning of a new year, believe in this God. Receive your King. Surrender your life. And in its place, watch what He will do. We know Paul preached this message again and again for three years, probably with all sorts of different approaches and angles, and depending on his audience, he sat with people one-on-one or in small groups, he proclaimed it in the marketplace, as was his custom. He even finds himself in this amphitheater. In every context, he is plainly making Jesus known through the Scriptures and the fulfillment of everything that has come. When he wrote to the Ephesians in chapter 2 of his letter, Of course, he didn't have chapters when he wrote it, but we've later put chapters and verses in to help us find things. Ephesians 2, verse 13. But now in Christ, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. It doesn't matter how far you've run from God and how deeply you've rejected Him. And every one of us has, whether in arrogance or in ignorance. It doesn't matter. You who are far off have been brought near through the blood of Christ. You're never too far. Jesus taught that famous story of the prodigal son. That father who watched for him and longed for him every day while he was gone. I know that many of you have played that very same role of that prodigal who has run and squandered. Many of you are here because you have been brought back. Because Jesus has pursued you and found you and redeemed you. Many of us have played the role of the prodigal older son, the older brother who is prideful at our actions that we have remained faithful while others haven't. And we found that the story is just as much much about us as it was about the one who ran because we remained in our pride and our arrogance though we were close to the Father by our words and our actions, our heart was still far from Him. And we too have found His healing and redemption and been brought near. But if you find yourself this morning in a place that is far from Him in heart, that's your experience, that's your perspective, not God's. He has brought you near. Respond and receive the hope of the Gospel. He came, Jesus, and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who are near, both brothers. For through Him we all have access in one Spirit to our Father. This is the hope of the good news. The good news transforms our life if we receive it for two primary reasons. One, the second is more significant than the first. Hit my hand. One, we recognize the futility of our former way of life. That that path was leading me into all sorts of Directions and ways away from God. I know it. Unless you come to that place, you'll never come to turn from it and receive. You must come. And some come much more quickly to that place. Some are on a journey that takes a long time before they can say the very simple reality, I was wrong. Lord, help me. We recognize the futility of this way of life and we come to see Jesus to put our faith into Him as the way, the truth, and the life. All of His words prove true. We find that to be true. And so we have hope that even in the midst of the things that we don't understand or don't like about our current circumstances or the world that we live in, we say, I know that you've never failed your word and you've always proved true, and so I claim it as still true. And so we strive to follow. We strive to walk close with Him. That's the first transformation. It's our response to what God has done. The second is all Him. Because when we come to believe, we are filled with the Holy Spirit. That's His promise. He puts His Spirit to dwell within us. Praise God for the way He works in us to help us live holy lives in His timing and His way. The power of the Spirit transforms us. These spiritualists experienced it in a radical way. Consider this 
not the norm, although in Acts it's more maybe of the norm than at other times. But this, this is the only time in Paul's ministry that we see him impart a gift of the Spirit. We certainly see that ministry of his consistently, but where he imparts the gift of the Spirit and the Spirit decides to reveal himself in tongues again, in this proclamation of other languages or even heavenly languages. We're a little uncertain, and that would take us truly into a trail. They are prophesying. They are proclaiming things that are true about God that they previously did not know. It's the primary definition of prophecy, revealing the truth without otherwise having known it, speaking on behalf of who God is. And that prophecy would then be confirmed by God's word. This is what's happening. We haven't seen it since Acts 10, and we won't see it again in this way. So consider this as another evidence of the fulfillment of Acts 1.8. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and you will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. And every time... God's word goes out. It goes out from Jerusalem to, the, uh, to Samaria, to the Samaritans, and the Spirit descends on them, and there's a mini Pentecost-type moment evident of the power of the Spirit at work to transform lives. We see it again in Caesarea, kind of the gateway to the ends of the earth, and here we are in Ephesus, another influential leading city, and the Spirit descends again in power to God's glory and to their joy, giving immediate evidence that transformation has occurred. That's how God always works. He makes himself known. He reveals himself, not always in the same ways. It may be as simple to an individual as, I just know. There's a sense of, I don't know how else to describe it. I mean, you want to maybe say that uh, you felt something move through you. You got, you got, you got the, the tinglies, the fuzzies, the, but it may be as simple as, I just have a, I just have a peace that I didn't, I've never had before. I have a joy. I just have a perspective that has, that has changed, something has changed within me. Holy Spirit, make yourself known. This is our ongoing, consistent prayer in manifest ways that we would give you glory and worship. But we also must be very careful to tell the Holy Spirit what he must do, and we must never doubt what he can do. He is living and active with us, as is the Word of God. Notice that it is the Jews who named the disciples of Jesus in Ephesus followers of the way. When the Holy Spirit gets a hold of our life, when we recognize the futility of our former way of life and we begin to strive to walk with Him, it's noticeable. It's noticeable first to us and then should be to others. And in this case, it's very evident. Now, the Jews are likely more angry and opposed to their preaching, to the message they are proclaiming than their way of life. But even their way of life could be a a threat to them. Because the Jews, the religious, believed that they had figured life out. And here were a people living a whole different way. And so they are speaking evil against the way. Verse 9, when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, they spoke evil of the way before the whole congregation. And so Paul withdrew from them and took the disciples with him. That's when he shifted his focus to the Gentiles, the Greeks, They were speaking evil against the way. The way. Jesus came and said, I am the way, and he also modeled a way of life that was drastically different than the religious and the spiritualists and then the hedonists. What's so ironic here is, as they are speaking evil, and that's their intent to stir up strife, they're actually proclaiming the truth. These are followers of a whole new way that they have yet to see. Uh, Even maybe more ironic. Uh, One of the most famous passages in the Old Testament scriptures, one of the clearest uh, messianic promises is from Jeremiah chapter 32. This is where uh, God says through Jeremiah, I will make with them an everlasting covenant. He speaks of the new covenant that Jesus would come and say, here is the new covenant in my blood. It's what we'll celebrate at the table this morning. That's what Jeremiah proclaims. The irony here is that every Jew would have had this passage memorized. 
And in this passage, God says, this is verse 38 and 39 of Jeremiah 32, God says, they shall be my people. I will be their God. And I will give them one heart and one way. So this language of speaking of a way, it transcended more, more than just a way of living, but all of life. Jesus fulfilled. This, this kind of language is throughout Scripture over and over again. The way of life, a narrow path, Jesus said. This is Matthew chapter 7, verse 13 in the famous Sermon on the Mount. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. But the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Paul would say, keep in step with the Spirit. Some translations, walk by the Spirit. Jeremiah, earlier in his prophecy, Jeremiah 6, verse 16 Stand by the roads and watch and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your souls. Throughout the Psalms, here's a few. Psalm 16, verse 11. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The famous Psalm 23 Verse 3, He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. And Psalm 119, 105, Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Have you ever wondered why Christians seem to have this weird language that they speak? We might call it a Christianese. uh, And it centers around journeys and paths and walking. And that's our faith. It's not because we've been reading a lot of cards and coffee mugs at Hallmark. It's biblical, but sometimes it helps to see it and explain it. And the right question here is our way of living, our way of life, so noticeable and distinguished that it stirs. Maybe that's a nice way to put it. It agitates. It's, it's visible like light in the darkness. It certainly was everywhere Paul went. And we live in this tension because Paul was the one who says, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with all people. So that's his, that's his encouragement. That's his word. And yet it's hard to read, to read that and then consider his ministry. In every city he went to, he, he stirred up strife. And in, in this case, the whole city was in an uproar because of his ministry, because of his preaching, because of his lifestyle. And so we hold those in tension and we say, am I living at peace with all people as far as it depends on me? And yet if there is no disruption in the worldly courts by the message that we proclaim and the life that we live, it's probably a right question to ask. And yet the last thing I want you to do is to walk out these doors feeling, I need to to work harder. I need to do more. I, 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 I have to... That's religion. What I'm, what I'm calling us to this morning, I hope I always call us to this, is to fix our eyes on Jesus. To see Him and what He's done. To come and give our life fully to Him and ask Him to do whatever He wants in and through us. To be so captivated by Him and His heart and His passion as Paul was that where we go... He is with us. We are walking in step with the Holy Spirit. And it's the Spirit and Him alone who can agitate and stir and disrupt if He wants. May we simply be faithful. To speak when He asks us to speak. To be silent when He asks us to be silent. To know His voice and know His Word. It's our whole pursuit of of life. Now this kind of living doesn't happen all at once. And we have this encouragement right from this passage. Most of us would like... To snap our fingers. I mean, why do resolutions take weeks and weeks and weeks? May it just happen today that I could have all of these things in my life that distract me and keep me from God just melt away. But we're encouraged here in the way the Spirit works. He will lead us to places of surrender. We see the Ephesians, verse 18. Many of those who are now believers... They still are coming, confessing and divulging their practices. 
And they bring together these books of magic arts, of witchcraft, of uh, the spiritual realm, and they burn them. And it says 50,000 pieces of silver. This has been estimated at tens of thousands, even into the millions. We're a little uncertain what pieces of silver means in this account, but it's a vast sum. Anytime we come to places of surrender, of conviction of heart, to turn from, to lay down things that previously were of great worth in our life, we are saying to our God, you are of infinite worth. You are far more worthy than any other thing that I've possessed or that I have that I've attached my heart to and we lay it down. Some probably, like Judas, would have said, why did you burn them and not sell them and give to the poor? But God is not after our money, he's after our hearts. But where your treasure is there, your heart is also. And they were saying, no longer do we treasure the things of this world, but we lay them down, that we would treasure you, God, and you alone. When the man found the treasure hidden in the field, he went out and sold everything in joy, everything he owned to possess that field. It became the most valuable thing to him. God leads us into these places to lay down willingly. And it might not be wrong to pray the prayer, Lord, Lord, take from me purify my heart, strip me of anything that is keeping me from you. But you know what happens when you have your hands clenched tightly around things and then they are pulled from your grasp? Painful that way. Much more painful than holding something with open hands and having it taken. Is that the posture we approach the Lord with even this morning as we come to his table, as we respond to his word. For some of you, you may not need any kind of nudge. And this take this as an encouragement that God has already been speaking and that you've already been listening as you're coming into this new season, a good time to be thinking these kinds of thoughts. Lord, what would you have for me? Is there anything in my life that is keeping me from you? It may be very evident You may know it. You may have been wrestling with this for a long time and God has finally brought you to a place to say, I'm done. I lay that down willingly and walk away. For others of you, let this be the prod that you need to be praying these kinds of prayers. Lord, what is that? And maybe it's not obviously something that would take you from the Lord, but all it's doing is consuming your time your thoughts, your energy, and your emotion. Habits. And maybe today would be a day that you would willingly come. And the second thing that happens, God strip us, strip us of even the things that we're ignorant of. Not only is the pain and that immediate loss and that immediate stripping and humility, but is also the lingering pain, the lingering loss of not coming in worship in worshipful surrender. That we would come willingly and say, Lord, I don't think this is helpful. In fact, I know it's not. You're convicting my heart. I come in repentance. Repentance is seeing reality, seeing the truth, being convicted, turning from a way of life or a way of thinking and not only stop, not just turning from and stopping, but turning from and walking in a whole new direction. Replacing that pursuit with a new pursuit. If, for example, and I know this is just hypothetical, if, for example, football or a sport consumed time, energy, money, and attention, you were giving yourself to the worship of, you're ascribing worth and finding your worth in that connection, probably not the sport, but in maybe even the community, and you're right there chanting along, and you haven't even paused long enough to say, why am I even doing this? If God were to convict you of that and you were to say, I lay that down, it's not just laying down, it's replacing in pursuit of Him. I'll let you do that work. I don't need to spell that out for you. But I will pray for us. I'll invite the team to come and lead us in a time of responding to God's Word that He would convict our hearts, that we would see clearly where we are merely like spiritualists. We've taken some bits and pieces, but we have not surrendered our life to follow Jesus. If that's you, may it be today. And evidence of that is coming in response to receive communion. 
is a tangible evidence being reminded of what Christ has done to bring you life. His body broken instead of yours. His blood shed for your forgiveness. We come in hope and in joy. And even if you've never received communion in this way, I wish we could all gather around one table. That would have been more, more biblical, but we're striving to do that in a larger context. Even with all the questions and doubts and uncertainties and say, oh, my life hasn't even changed yet, I don't know. Come and receive. Jesus extends his offer to you. Brothers, as we do that, or even from the place that you sit or the place that you stand, you respond to God's word and say, and I see where my religious actions are. I see where my worldly life still has hold on my heart. And I confess, Lord, and perhaps even the posture of open hands or hands extended is the tangible response of what God is doing in your heart. I was listening to a sermon this week and reminded of this ancient Puritan prayer. And so let me pray it for us as we respond. And if you are a guest with us and newer to our our family, we welcome you again. This is a part of our regular rhythm. We celebrate this meal every Sunday. Why do in remembrance? Because we're prone to forget. Lord, thank you. So come to the table. There's elements there in the back. Anytime as we're singing, come. It's good to be people of movement. So we say, get up and move. Walk, walk to the Lord. And so we have a chance to do that in expression. We have a chance to give, and that's a response ultimately to what God has given to us. It's joining in with his work. So give generously. Give sacrificially. Let that be your response. I know many of you give in various ways at different times. It's just an opportunity to give. A chance to drop in a card if you need prayer or have prayer requests or just want to get connected. Please do that. Join me in a word of prayer, this brief word. I'm just struggling to try to find a connection to this. No no great worry, just uh, our plumbing is not currently working. So um, if you have emergency type needs for that, there is a home nearby and there's grace, I think, from uh, the residents there to use that. If not, uh, maybe fellowship will be a little bit short today. I guess we could add that to our prayer, but this prayer was supposed to be a very simple prayer leading us into response. And Holy Spirit, we do turn to you and we turn to you, Jesus, and we turn to you, God our Father. And we say, what we know not, teach us. What we have not, grant us. What we are not, make us. Amen.